Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, March 14th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Happy Pi Day, Jill. It is March 14th, <laughs> 314, 314. Big day in your house. A rager like them all, Mosh. <laughs> I think it's become a big day, uh, especially for science nerds out there, a reminder that pi, the number 3.14, and then it goes on and on and on and on and on. There's always that kid in school that had it memorized, like 20 or 30 of the numbers. No matter how big or small the circle, whether it's the size of our universe or an atom, it's the ratio of a circle's circumference, the distance around the circle, to its diameter, the distance across the circle, that that is always that equation is always equal to pi, 3.14, and so on. And you know what today also is? Albert Einstein's birthday, March 14th, 1879. He was born. And Moshe, I hope I am not stepping on on this day in history. No, Joe, we just call that a deep tease to later in this podcast. Okay, so let's get to it. Here are the headlines. We're going to have the latest from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the debate over what went wrong. Up north, President Biden's latest plan to expand oil drilling in Alaska. And to the south, the U.S. ratcheting up pressure on Mexico following the kidnapping of those Americans. Apple's newest consumer product might finally be ready for its big reveal. Coming to a school cafeteria near you this fall. Lunchables as part of your meal plan. The government files suit against a major pharmacy for overprescribing opioids. Hugh Grant's controversial red carpet interview, and Mosh has on this day in history. Jill, we'll tell you who was the first president to fly in a plane on this day, March 14th. All right, we continue to track the fallout in the banking world from the collapse of two banks over the weekend. On Monday, President Biden insisting that the American banking system was still safe after the second and third largest bank failures in the country's history happened in the span of just 48 hours. In response to the crisis, regulators guaranteed all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, even those that exceeded the federally insured limit of $250,000 per account. The feds also created a program that effectively threw a lifeline to other banks to protect them from bank runs. President Biden said your deposits will be there when you need them, trying to reassure Americans, adding that the banking execs responsible for the failures would be held accountable. Despite that, some customers continued to withdraw savings from mid-sized banks Monday, and investors broadly sold off bank shares. Huge drops for First Republic, Western Alliance, PacWest, and Metropolitan Bank, among others. Investors still worried about them. Separately, the Fed announced that it would also review and investigate its supervision of Silicon Valley Bank to see whether they properly monitored the bank for potential concerns. It comes as the president mentioned that Congress needs to bring back regulations that President Trump had dropped or scaled back in 2018. So that law was known as Dodd-Frank. It's still in effect. At least part of it is in effect. So this all followed the 2008 financial collapse. Congress and then the President Obama uh, passed legislation uh, that effectively required banks considered systemically important to the system to keep more money on hand and undergo what's called stress tests, basically ensure that these banks could handle a financial crisis. They put that standard at any bank that had $50 billion or more. Fast forward to 2018, President Trump signs a law that uh, lowers that threshold. 
at which a bank is considered too big to fail. Instead of now meeting the definition at 50 billion or above, the banks now need to have 250 billion or above to be considered systemically important. So banks that have less than 250 billion currently don't undergo the same level of scrutiny as those larger banks. And Moshe, I really think that it's important to note that the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, Greg Becker, he lobbied the government to relax Dodd-Frank. He was part of that lobbying group. His argument was basically that the bank wasn't big enough to ever really cause any systemic failures in the system and that they wouldn't really need to be bailed out, um, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. And, and by the way, we should note he was among the entire financial industry that said this, that regional banks, these smaller banks, smaller, I'll use air quotes here, smaller than $250 billion. Effectively, there was too much paperwork for them. And they're like, listen, we're not Goldman Sachs. We're not Citibank. We shouldn't have to be dealing with the same standards. It's actually impacting how we give out loans, et cetera. That was the argument they made. So in 2018, this is rolled back. What's interesting here, Jill, is that Silicon Valley Bank, as of the latest numbers, had $209 billion uh, in assets. So it would have been subject to enhanced requirements under the previous law, you know, under the law that said 50 billion or above. Signature Bank, by the way, had more than $100 billion under management. So again, they also would have been under more scrutiny, under more requirements under the previous law. Now that it was raised to $250 billion, they didn't have to deal with that. Now, we should say it's not entirely clear whether things would have ended differently here, even if they were governed by tighter capital standards, but it would have meant more scrutiny for these banks, similar to the bigger ones. Now, notably, we should note that while President Trump did sign the 2018 partial rollback of Dodd-Frank, uh, named for the co-sponsors, Senator Chris Dodd of Connecticut and Congressman Barney Frank of Massachusetts. It did also receive support from Democrats, Jill. 17 Senate Democrats joined Republicans in passing that, including Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, a Democrat uh, uh, who was asked about it over the weekend and currently continues to have oversight over banking and financial matters. And, and he defended that move still. So this is now the hot debate in Washington. Senator Elizabeth Warren taking to the New York Times opinion page to draw a line between the rollback of Dodd-Frank for smaller banks and this weekend's collapse. That op-ed, kind of like an I told you so, she said she did not vote to roll back Dodd-Frank for those smaller banks and argued at the time that this very thing would happen. At the same time, the co-sponsor of the original bill, former Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Barney Frank, literally the Frank in Dodd-Frank, is pushing back on that. Incidentally, following his time in Congress, he joined the board of Signature Bank, cannot make this up, where he has earned more than $2.4 million. Signature is one of the banks that was shut down this weekend. He says, though, that less scrutiny after the 2018 reform was not to blame. In fact, he thinks that the government shut down Signature too quickly. He said that lifting the thresholds was actually a good change that saved smaller banks a lot of paperwork. So you're seeing this interesting debate here within the Democratic Party uh, about that move in 2018, how much it had to do with the collapse that we saw this weekend. And it came as President Biden said on Monday that he does want to bring back some of those regulations. The White House was not specific. We will monitor what happens at Capitol Hill. But this ongoing debate will be interesting to watch. And Jill, that revolving door is remarkable. I was a Fox News Capitol Hill reporter in 2009, chasing Barney Frank around as he was slamming bank CEOs in the aftermath of the financial collapse uh, and saying, you know, they don't get enough scrutiny. We got to do more. This is out of control. So, you know, he co-authors this legislation 
And I guess you, we shouldn't be that surprised, but I still kind of find it surprising that he's literally on the board of a bank lobbying against some of the rules that he wrote just a few years later, still defending it. Uh, we see this in a lot of industries between Washington and industry, but it's particularly interesting given, again, his role specifically in this type of legislation. As we said, the Frank in Dodd-Frank. The, the Frank in Dodd-Frank is like, no, we, we, we can roll back part of the Frank, not the Dodd part. <laughs> <laughs> Jill, we're going to keep monitoring this throughout the week. It is the story on Wall Street. Obviously, slightly less concerned that we can see a collapse of the entire banking system, but some regional banks still on edge. And it comes as there are multiple reports now that the FDIC is going to try to auction off Silicon Valley Bank, again, remember, they tried to do that over the weekend. They apparently didn't get any takers among the largest U.S. banks. They were hoping for like a J.P. Morgan or one of the big banks to uh, potentially buy them up. There was apparently one offer made, but it was declined by the FDIC. So clearly someone trying to offer a very low amount. But they hope that now that they've called the bank's collapse a threat to the entire financial system and they've effectively insured all the uninsured deposits, that that would incentivize one of these banks to take on Silicon Valley Bank and they can offer some additional sweeteners. Okay, now to some energy news and the latest pivot by President Biden toward the center. The Biden administration said Monday it is approving the huge Willow oil drilling project on Alaska's petroleum-rich North Slope. It is a major environmental decision by President Biden that drew quick condemnation from environmentalists and progressives. As climate change continues to be an issue, the Willow approval by the Bureau of Land Management would allow three drill sites, which would include up to 199 total wells. Two other drill sites proposed for the project would be denied. And in an attempt to quell concerns, the president at the same time announcing restrictions on offshore oil leasing in the Arctic Ocean and across Alaska's North Slope. It is an apparent effort to temper criticism over the Willow decision. The drilling project would take place inside the Petroleum Reserve, which is located about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. The reserve is the country's largest single expanse of pristine land. feel like he's basically upsetting everybody here. Like he's trying to he's trying to sort of placate everyone. But I feel like everyone's annoyed. There's no winning in the middle, Jill. <laughs> um, but he's trying to do his best after receiving two years of criticism from the right for not doing enough uh, for oil companies and allowing more drilling to get gas prices cheaper to allow some here. Keep in mind, this is an eight billion dollar project led by ConocoPhillips, the oil giant, and it will have the potential to produce more than 600 million barrels of crude over 30 years. Now, environmentalists say they're going to try to stop this. They're planning to file multiple lawsuits here. They say that allowing the drilling plan to go forward would be a major breach of Biden's campaign promise to stop new oil drilling on federal land. But it, what's interesting here is the White House officials are trying to preempt other legal issues. They were concerned that ConocoPhillips has decades-old leases in the area and that would limit the government's legal ability to block the project and that courts would end up ruling in their favor anyway. So they allowed this thing to go through. This will produce about 180,000 barrels of oil a day, create up to 2,500 jobs during construction, and then 300 long-term jobs, as well as generate billions of dollars in royalties, tax revenues to the federal, state, and local government. And what's notable, Jill, here is that locally, this is hugely popular. It enjoys widespread political support in the state. And getting to your first point, Jill, you know, Joe's about to run for re-election here. Gas prices are still a concern. He's trying to balance things out while criticizing uh, oil companies. On one hand, he wants to allow this, uh, but it does come as 
You know, he's upset liberals on border issues, right? He's been cracking down on the border. Here you see it on the environment. And he's gone more centrist on crime, uh, blocking part of the D.C. social justice legislation, uh, trying to crack down on crime in the city. So you're seeing it on a few fronts here that Biden, which is typical here, you see it on the Republicans and Democrats, you play towards the center as you uh, attempt re-election. Notably, Mosh, all Alaska lawmakers want the Willow Project. Other supporters, including labor unions and some residents of the North Slope, have argued that the project would create those jobs you mentioned and generate as much as $17 billion in revenue for the federal government. Most indigenous groups in Alaska, including the state's first Alaska native elected to Congress, Mary Peltola, also support it. Jill, we have much more to talk about in this podcast, including the speed read and our debate over Hugh Grant on the red carpet. We'll play that full clip for everyone and discuss it coming up here. But first, I want to talk about one of our partners this week, Harry's. It is a brand I've been using for a great shave for a number of years now. My wife found their aftershave a couple of years ago, and I've been a loyal customer ever since. I then more recently tried their shaving cream as well. And so I'm so excited they're joining us as a partner with a special deal for the Mo News community, they are offering their Truman Shave Trial Set. It includes one of their five-blade razors with a nice weighted handle, as well as that shaving gel. It is a $15 value that you can get for a limited time for $3 over at harrys.com slash monews. Again, the Truman Shaving Kit includes a five-blade razor, the foaming shave gel, a travel cover that covers key. You can put it around the blade so you don't cut yourself in your dop kit, keeps the blade clean. You can also schedule replacement blade delivery whenever you need them with refills for as little as $2. I am genuinely a big fan of the Harry's brand. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Again, this special Mo News deal here, $15 Truman Shave Trial Set for only $3 right now at harrys.com slash monews. That's Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash monews for the $3 trial set. Now to Athletic Greens. I've been using their AG1 supplement in the mornings. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, it's quick, and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash Mo News to take advantage of the offer And you could get a discounted monthly subscription or you could try it one time for just a month. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read. The latest from the front lines in Ukraine from the BBC. Ukraine and Russia are saying that they are inflicting heavy losses on one another as the battle for the eastern city of Bamut rages on. Moscow has been trying to take the Ukrainian city for months in a grinding war of attrition. Ukrainian President Zelensky said Russian forces had suffered more than 1,100 deaths in just the past few days, with many more people seriously injured. So that would make it one of the deadliest weeks of the war so far. Russia says it has killed more than 220 Ukrainian service members over the past 24 hours. The BBC is unable to verify those numbers given by either side. But analysts say the city has little strategic value, but it's become a focal point for Russian commanders who have struggled to deliver any positive news to the Kremlin. 
There have been questions over how long Ukraine could choose to defend Bakhmut, a city that has almost been completely surrounded by Russian forces. There are mercenary fighters from what's called the Wagner Group that's advanced into parts of the city. Last week, Ukraine said it would continue to defend the city and would send in more reinforcements. Like Russia, Ukraine has also given a huge amount of importance to Bakhmut, with President Zelensky saying it is an emblem of resistance. When Zelensky visited D.C. back in December, he called it the fortress of our morale and gave a flag from the city to Congress. There were about 70,000 people living in the city before the invasion. Only a few thousand remain. It was best known for its salt and gypsum mines and a huge winery. Unfortunately, Joel, you see this a lot in war, where the two sides are willing to sacrifice so much in terms of uh, their troops. Jill, unfortunately, you see this so often in war where the two sides ascribe such importance to something that right now has little strategic value and they're willing to just sacrifice so many people, unfortunately, for a very small patch of land. Moshe, as I was reading that story and I was thinking about the numbers here, whether they're an overestimate or an underestimate, 1,100 deaths of Russian forces, 220 Ukrainian. I mean, these are all fathers and brothers. And I mean, these are real people with families and loved ones. And this thing has been going on now for more than a year. And it's just crazy for what to what end. And listen, no matter the war that you're in, I mean, I remember talking to U.S. veterans who'd come back from Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're talking about like retaking the same patch of land over and over again. And people who have died or gotten wounded, their lives are permanently altered you know, for this small patch of land that the two sides have decided are really important in that moment. It's just so unfortunate as this war is now grinding through its second year and and shows no signs of letting up. From the Financial Times, the U.S. is turning up the heat on Mexico after cartel kidnappings. The brazen kidnapping and murder of Americans in a Mexican border city has President Andre Lopez Obrador facing calls from Washington for a drastic crackdown on Mexico's drug cartels. And it also comes as U.S. opioid deaths soar. Republicans are calling for U.S. military intervention against Mexican drug lords and to attack Lopez Obrador for enabling drug traffickers. And the pressure from Washington continues after official figures showed that fentanyl, a synthetic opioid smuggled from Mexico, killed more than 70,000 Americans in the year to last August. Senior figures from both parties, the current and former attorneys general, And the head of the DEA have all said recently that Mexico is not doing enough to stop the flood of fentanyl over the border. Lopez Obrador has insisted that Mexico does not produce fentanyl, even though the U.S. State Department's narcotics report said Mexico was the only significant source of illicit fentanyl last year. Lopez Obrador responded to criticism this week, saying we are not going to allow a foreign government to intervene far less the armed forces of a foreign government. Mexico must be respected. We are not a protectorate of the United States or a United States colony. We should note here that the cartels have a huge amount of influence in Mexico. They've infiltrated parts of the Mexican government. So Obrador here has a very difficult challenge of navigating this issue. Keep in mind, by the way, hundreds of Mexicans are kidnapped by the cartels every year. But this was Americans during daylight and caught on video. Do you have a number of officials in Washington asking questions here and demanding more. Republican Senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, said last week he wanted to set the stage to use military force in Mexico by introducing a bill to designate Mexican drug cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. In a recent letter, 21 state attorneys general requested that Biden make that designation, calling the drug cartels terrorist groups, which would then allow the U.S. to use lethal military force. 
There was a congressional hearing recently about this, though before the kidnapping incident, and Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked about this. He said he's not opposed to designating these groups terrorist groups, but added there are a number of diplomatic concerns in making that call. They need assistance from Mexico here. So this is the U.S. administration saying, listen, we still have to have a relationship with Mexico. They are a major trading partner. There are hundreds of thousands of people across the border every day. So it's also tricky for Washington here. So the White House for now has resisted the demands to call the uh, drug cartels terrorist groups. They say they have enough authority to deal with this right now and have an open line from Mexicans. But you can see here the pressure continuing to ratchet up. From Reuters, the United States sues Rite Aid for missing opioid red flags. In the lawsuit, the U.S. government is accusing the pharmacy chain of missing red flags as it illegally filled hundreds of thousands of prescriptions for controlled substances including opioids. From May 2014 until June 2019, the federal government claims that Rite Aid filled unlawful prescriptions for controlled substances that were medically unnecessary, lacked a medically accepted indication, or were not issued in the usual course of professional practice. The Justice Department also said Rite Aid intentionally deleted some pharmacists' internal warnings about suspicious prescribers, such as cash-only pill mill, while admonishing them to be mindful of everything that is put in writing. Rite Aid is one of the country's largest pharmacy chains with more than 2,000 stores in 17 states. Yeah, there's some fascinating details in the lawsuit, Jill. As you mentioned, some pharmacists suspecting that some people coming in for opioids might have been selling them. The, The pill mill note you just mentioned, the Justice Department originally joined a whistleblower complaint filed back in 2019 by two pharmacists and a pharmacy tech worked in Rite Aid stores in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and West Virginia. The Justice Department will occasionally join whistleblower cases it considers on the stronger side. Keep in mind here the state of play. The numbers here really, Jill, are heartbreaking. More than 500,000 Americans have died of drug overdoses over the last 20 years, including 90,000 Americans in 2020 alone. And this is something the government is taking seriously. We mentioned in the Mexico story, uh, drugs coming over the border. These are legal drugs being taken out by the pharmacies. And there have been already a number of settlements with several major brands. Walmart, late in 2022, agreeing to pay $3.1 billion to resolve thousands of lawsuits over its pharmacy's roles in the crisis. Walgreens agreed last year to pay $4.8 billion. CVS expected to pay $4.9 billion. Some tech news from Bloomberg. Apple now planning to introduce its first mixed reality headset this June. It marks the latest setback for the tech giant's next big initiative, which has now delayed the rollout multiple times. The iPhone maker now aiming to unveil the product at its annual Worldwide Developers Conference. Apple made the decision to delay the launch earlier this month after product testing showed that both hardware and software issues still needed to be ironed out, they said. The debut of the headset has been a long time coming, with Apple working on the technology since around 2015. At one point, the company aimed to introduce the product in June of last year before pushing back the introduction until around this past January. It was then shifted to this spring and now this summer Okay, I'm going to just say this, and you'll probably in a year from now or two years from now have this and be like, you know, what did Jill know? But does anybody want a mixed reality headset? Is this something anybody (laughs) is asking for? That is the question beyond the gamers out there. I mean, I think that's the one area where they find a customer base, Jill. 
And Mark Zuckerberg and the folks over at Meta will tell you that that is the challenge they've been facing so far with Oculus. But that isn't stopping Apple from getting into the marketplace. Remember the Apple mentality that they can do things better. Uh, they will get you to maybe get interested in this. And I will play this back for you in one or two years, Jill, when we're doing this, <laughs> when we're recording this podcast with their virtual and augmented reality headset. This would be, if they can get this launched in June, their first major new product category in years. You have to go back to their smartwatch launch in 2015 for them to enter a new category. But it is a still uncertain market. Apple, by the way, plans to charge about $3,000 for these new headsets. And there are concerns that it'll be too costly and suffer the same fate as Zuckerberg's Oculus headsets, which have been slow to go mainstream. It is a quiet year, though, for Apple. Jill, they're going to introduce a larger MacBook, a new Mac Pro desktop, some updates to the iPhone, but no significant changes to most of their devices. So they reportedly here are putting a lot in this headset. And so we shall see. Most Bloomberg reports the company is already eyeing a cheaper version with less pricey and powerful components for release as early as 2024. Sign me up for either none of it or the cheaper version. That's <laughs> funny. They haven't released the expensive version yet, but they already have a cheaper version planned. But given the delayed rollout of this first one, you know, we'll see if that 2024 actually sticks. From CNN, Launchables are going to be rolled out directly to students. Kraft Heinz has succeeded in getting its ready-to-eat packaged Lunchables into school lunch programs starting this fall in a major new initiative. But the company had to reformulate the ingredients to ensure that the products meet federal guidelines first. An executive vice president with the company said two new varieties of Lunchables, these are separate from Lunchables sold in grocery stores, with improved nutrition that comply with the national school lunch program requirements are going to be served in K through 12 schools nationwide starting in the fall. The National School Lunch Program, or the NSLP, it's almost 80 years old. It provides lunch every day to about 30 million students in public and nonprofit private schools. So there's not a lot of information except the sleuths over at CNN did some investigative reporting and they found a website called crafthinesawayfromhome.com and it describes two products, Lunchables Turkey and Cheddar Cracker Stackers and Lunchables Extra Cheesy Pizza. Yeah, Jill, CNN Business tried to get more details. They called the USDA saying like, what are these new healthy Lunchables and what's in them? The USDA said, go talk to Kraft Heinz for further details about the nutritional content. But unfortunately, that's where it stopped. Kraft Heinz says, we're declining right now to provide any additional details about the cost, nutritional content, sodium, saturated fat content, TBD. Nutritionists were quoted in the story saying they need to know the sodium, saturated fat, added sugar content in these reformulated Lunchables to really determine whether they're a beneficial addition to school lunches. So that's up in the air. We might get more details, I guess, in the fall. But at the same time, Lunchables could be welcome in some school districts that are struggling with higher food costs, labor shortages, and as school nutrition guidelines are getting increasingly complex here, Jill, more companies are leaving the K-12 through segment, which I guess leaves the, the government looking to Lunchables. Jill, were you big on Lunchables as a kid? I was just trying to think about it. No, I don't recall ever having a Lunchable, but I'm getting flashbacks to middle school, to the cafeteria, and I feel like I either had French fries a bagel and cream cheese or a chipwich every day and just sort of like rotated. So <laughs> that's that's the lunch of champions right there, Jill. And I, I was very lucky. You know, my mom, for the most part, made by lunch growing up was a rotation of like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, a deli meat sandwich 
And then once in a while, she did a cream cheese and olive sandwich, which, by the way, Mm. tasted pretty good, but definitely got me some looks in the lunchroom. But keep in mind, this Lunchable story is about a lot of kids who aren't privileged enough to have that lunch made at home and are dependent on school for food. And I feel like I've discussed this a few times now in the Instagram account, uh, including some uh, people who run school lunch programs who follow Mo News over there, who say that it, it is getting more challenging, that some of the meals are pretty gross and the kids are only eating dessert now. So kind of like a young Jill Wagner, just a chip witch. <laughs> By the way, my mom, by the way, as you're saying, oh, my mom packed my lunch, healthy, hit all of the food groups. My mom listens to this podcast every day. I think she's going to be mortified right now. Jill, for the record, along with that sandwich was like a (laughs) bag of Frito-Lay chips, a big, typically can of Coke, and like a Nutter Butter or a Little Debbie. So I feel better. Just do you feel better now, Mrs. (laughs) Wagner? (laughs) We were talking before the podcast, though. I do think the question that was posed to you on on Instagram was really interesting, which is, why wouldn't Lunchable sell this to the general population? Why is this just for schools? Why is the healthy version only going to schools and the like really high in sodium version going to uh, you know everyone else? That is a question for the folks at Kraft Heinz. We'll see how this new Lunchable plays in the uh, school lunch rooms, but it sounds like it might be incumbent on you, the consumer to uh, request that over in your local grocery store. And one story that people are still talking about from the Oscars via CNN, Hugh Grant's awkward Oscars red carpet interview with Ashley Graham divides opinion. And the 2023 Oscar for the most awkward red carpet moment goes to Hugh Grant, the Love Actually actor, divided viewers on Sunday night after he appeared unimpressed with model and TV presenter Ashley Graham's line of questioning during their pre-show chat. The interview for ABC's Countdown to the Oscars immediately got off to a painful start, and it just kept getting more and more awkward. So take a listen, and we do want to warn you, you might actually be physically uncomfortable for the entirety of this clip. What's your favorite thing about coming to the Oscars? Um, well, uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. It's uh, it's uh, uh, the whole of humanity is here. It's uh, <laughs> it's Vanity Fair. Oh, it's all about Vanity yeah. Fair. Yes, that's where we let loose and have a little bit of fun. Um, what are you most excited to see tonight? To see? Yeah, well, I know that you probably watched a few of the movies. Are you excited to see anybody win? Do you have your hopes up for anyone? Um, not, not, no, no one in particular. Okay, well, what are you wearing tonight, then? Just my suit. Your suit? Who yeah. made your suit? You didn't make it. Um, I can't remember. My tailor. That's okay. Yeah. Ta- shout out to the tailor. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what does it feel like to be in Glass Onion? It was such an amazing film. I really loved it. I love a thriller. How fun is it to shoot something like that? Well, I'm barely in it. I'm in it for about three seconds. Yeah, but still, you showed up and you had fun, right? Uh, Almost. Okay, all right. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much. It was nice to talk to you. Yeah. All right, back to you guys. Moshe, I think it all went downhill um, from Vanity Fair, where she didn't really get what he was talking about, where she obviously thought he was referring to the Vanity Fair after party. Right. Hugh was referring to a Vandy Fair, which apparently is a term from the 19th century British novel, talking about an extravagant society or community. So he was like, he went above her head there. And then if you watch the video clip, you see his facial expression being like, oh, this is who I'm talking to. But it's so, but it's so interesting, Jill, because like, 
these people who walk down the red carpet don't have to do these interviews. They choose to do them. So like, Hugh, if you're in a bad mood or not really feeling it, why? Why bother? Most so even before this whole Oscar situation, word on the street about Hugh Grant is that he is kind of like a curmudgeon. That's sort of his yeah. shtick. Right. And some people are defending Hugh, being like, you know, listen, we're all kind of over the Oscars. So is Hugh. He's being real. Uh, someone wrote on Twitter, ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. So you had those people who were saying Grant was simply being authentic with front of the bill of questions. Others commended him for being gracious and persistent. And then you have a whole school of thought being like, dude, you were so rude. Ashley was trying to be so nice to ask you these questions. And you couldn't have been more of a schmo in terms of how you answered them. Somebody commented, if you don't want to be there, go home. Worst Oscars interview ever. Though, Jill, I will say, as far as Hugh Grant interviews are concerned, I still don't think this holds a candle to the famous Jay Leno Tonight Show interview. For those of you who are not familiar, this is 1995, so Jesus, 28 years ago. And Hugh had been caught in Hollywood in a compromising position with a sex worker. Uh, he was arrested for lewd conduct. And Leno has him on The Tonight Show. This is a huge moment in, in history. Actually, this was a huge moment in ratings history because Letterman was beating Leno at the time. And with the Hugh Grant interview, Leno takes the ratings battle back. And this is when late night shows had like 30 million people watching. And Leno's first question to Hugh Grant was, what the hell were you thinking? Particularly because I believe that he was dating Elizabeth Hurley at the time, right? Right. <laughs> Exactly. A model, or like one of the most beautiful women on the planet. Right. You're, it's Hugh Grant and Liz Hurley, and then he's found the sex worker on like the Hollywood strip in a, in a in a lewd act. Anyway, Hugh Grant, interesting history of interviews here. Uh, Jill, a final note on the Oscars. The initial uh, preliminary ratings are in. They appear to have leveled out at, again, 16 million or so viewers this year. That was about the same as last year. So some folks internally at the Oscars are happy with that. At the same time, it's still half of what we saw just a few years ago. In 2016, 2017, you would see between 30 and 40 million people watching, and it completely bottomed out during COVID. And it looks like there's about 16 million people left interested in still watching the Oscars. You know what? I'm not ashamed to admit, Bosch, that I am one of the 16 million. And I like it. I think it's fun. I, I I admittedly don't know who a lot of the people are anymore, which is so sad. But there are still enough that I know. Um, and I, I always like hearing the host and the jokes and, and seeing the outfits and the dresses. Yeah, I thought Jimmy Kimmel did a good job on Sunday night, you know, uh, getting some good one-liners in, but not hitting below the belt. Uh, and, it's, you know, it's always cool seeing the Spielbergs and the John Williamses and the Jamie Lee Curtis winning, you know, her first one and some of the other emotional moments, you know, just so long. And for many folks, you know, you haven't seen the majority of the movies, so it feels like it becomes less and less relevant. All right. Now to On This Day in History. On this day, 80 years ago, in 1943, President Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, became the first president to fly in an airplane while in office. He would, of course, fly multiple times to Europe uh, and North Africa to help manage uh, World War II and meet with leaders over there. Fast forward a bit. In other presidential plane news, we learned this week that President Biden is going to stick with the current paint design of Air Force One as they build brand new jets to roll out in the next couple of years. You might recall that former President Trump wanted to change the colors to darker red and blue. He wanted a new design on the plane. 
fun history, that current design, that light blue, that iconic look was actually commissioned by Jackie Kennedy in the early 60s. She was unhappy with the initial sketch and design she got from the U.S. Air Force. It was going to be like red and orange and silver. And she's like, no, none of this. So she commissioned a marketing executive from New York who had actually designed the curvy Coke bottle, that iconic glass Coca-Cola bottle, to design the look for Air Force One. That's the look we still have today. And it appears President Biden is going to keep that. If it ain't broke, Moshe. That's what the Air Force said, actually. They said it would cost more to change the colors of the plane, which given the billions of dollars, I find that hard to believe, but that was the excuse they went with. And so you will have the light blue going for years to come. All right, one other piece of news on this day. In 1964, Jack Ruby was convicted of the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald. Jack Ruby was the nightclub owner that then killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin, the alleged assassin of President Kennedy. So Ruby was convicted on this day, sentenced to death. The ruling was later overturned when his defense attorney said he did not receive a fair trial. A later date was set for that trial, but then Ruby dies mysteriously of natural causes while awaiting a new trial. It's a wild chain of events that actually, if you look into the history of like all the witnesses, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald getting shot, Jack Ruby dying of natural causes, it does reinforce all the conspiracy theories that exist, being like, what actually happened on that day in Dallas? And on this Pi Day, some science history, sort of. It's Albert Einstein's birthday, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jill. Have you ever seen that famous photo of him sticking out his tongue? Of course. So that iconic photo of Einstein sticking out his tongue was officially snapped today, 72 years ago, on his 72nd birthday by a United Press International photographer. Einstein would pass away four years later, but that's the photo, and it's real. And it was taken on this day in 1951. Okay, a bit of music history before we leave you. Turning 33 years old today, the digital underground's The Humpty Dance. Do the hump. The Humpty Dance. <laughs> Came out today, March 14th, 1990. Oh, do, baby. <laughs> That's as high as I go, Moshe. I can't go higher than that. So many good lines in this song, Jill. My name is Humpty, pronounced with an umpty. <laughs> I'm funny looking. I like to rhyme. I like my beats funky. I'm spunky. I like my oatmeal lumpy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mosh, they don't make songs like they used to. No, no, they don't. Actually, there were interesting numbers that I recently posted, Jill, that peak length for a song was 80s, early 90s, when it was like five and a half minutes. Songs were typically five and a half minutes. And it is now in the Spotify streaming era. We're now in like the three minute range for length of song. So back then, there were all these extra verses and these like ridiculous, you know, oatmeal lumpy. And I mean, if you see the Humpty Dance, it is a long song. And one more 90s song that got us dancing back in the day, 25 years ago today, March 14th, 1998, Getting Jiggy With It by Will Smith reached number one on the Billboard charts. Jill, I figured I should give Will Smith some love today after, you know, the Oscars, <laughs> he might be in pain. Are we allowed to still listen to Will Smith? You know, it's interesting. Chris Rock made that joke in his special last week, being like, we can't listen to R. Kelly, but some of you are still listening to Michael Jackson. Must be just because his music is that good, huh? Selective outrage, as he said. Selective outrage, right? No Kanye, no R. Kelly, but still Michael Jackson and Will Smith. You know, Jill, to each their own. I happen to really like Will Smith's music, and I think it's fun, and I do play it, actually, so whatever. Like, he didn't kill anybody. He just, like, whatever. No, he slapped, he slapped Chris Rock. I, I think that we have very different standards here, given that R. Kelly's sitting in that life sentence, and Will Smith slapped a guy. 
Okay, Mosh, on that note, it's a wrap. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Those reviews do make a difference. So if you take a moment and review us, especially on Apple or Spotify, be grateful for all of that. And don't forget to follow us over on the Instagram at the Mo News account at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H. Jill, I'll see you back here tomorrow. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.